Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. How to get 30, 30, to get 30, how to get 20, 20, 20, how to get 20, 20, to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month? So, Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Hello, my name's David Runciman, and this is Past, Present, Future. Today, I'm talking to the historian Mary Beard about the Roman Empire. We're talking about what it was like to be Emperor of Rome, how the empire was ruled, and all the ways in which ruling the Roman Empire was and wasn't like being a ruler today. Past, Present, Future is brought to you in partnership with the London Review of Books, Europe's leading magazine of books and ideas. And you can subscribe for a special rate to get access to 40 years of incredible essay writing and all the latest issues by going to lrb.me slash ppf. That's lrb.me slash ppf. Mary, there's an advert that I keep hearing on the radio for one of those how to get a trusted tradesperson companies. And it's presented by Julius Caesar. Uh, And Julius Caesar comes on and the idea is he has trust issues because he says, I'm Julius Caesar and I can't trust my friends. So it's really important for me that I can trust my plumber. But he begins by saying, I'm Julius Caesar and I'm an emperor. And even emperors need to be able to trust their plumbers. And my son, whenever he hears that advert, my son is 14, says, but you're not an emperor. They've got it wrong. (laughs) You weren't the first emperor because that's what they're taught at school. And now I have to say to him, well, uh, Mary Beard (laughs) says that maybe Julius Caesar was the first emperor. (laughs) So, Mary, is Julius Caesar the first emperor? Well, that's a difficult question. (laughs) Your son is on the side of one rather unfavourable Amazon reviewer who clearly hasn't read my book, but who says, Julius Caesar isn't the first emperor. Right? Now, everybody's right in this. Julius Caesar really stands on the cusp between the sort of democracy of the Roman Republic and fully-fledged one-man rule under Augustus. Most people now, in school or uni, would actually treat Julius Caesar as the dying embers of the Republic. In the ancient world, he was more likely to be treated as the origin of one-man rule, partly because he does many of the things that emperors later do. So he puts his living head on the coinage, first living Roman to do that. He starts to flood the Roman world with images of himself. He starts to build kind of signature one-man rule building projects. Now, the problem is Julius Caesar only lasts four years before he's assassinated and he doesn't have time to bring any of this much to fruition. And anyway, he's away from Rome most of the time. But I think where I see him as a kind of proto-emperor and I'm with Suetonius on this. Suetonius's biography, series of biographies with the first 12 emperors, 12 Caesars. He starts with Julius Caesar. 
the thing that he's not is a king, right? and that's in a way the important distinction here, isn't it? And it's quite hard, I think, for modern imagination to wrap our head around that distinction because we think of emperors in some ways as more powerful than kings, but to be a king, it is hereditary privilege, and an emperor is not that. Mm, well, an emperor is half that. Half I mean, that. A king is all that, and an emperor is half that. For Rome, a king was harking back to the first kings of Rome, who were eventually thrown out after going to the bad. So kingship in Rome comes with the brand of Tarquin the Proud, who was kicked out for being a complete bastard. What Caesar eventually is called, or calls himself, is dictator forever. He calls himself dictator. Now, again, that's very much on the cusp, because dictator, the office of dictator, was actually an old Roman office. Most of the Roman democratic offices were very temporary, always shared, was two consuls for just one year. But Romans weren't completely stupid, and they realised that occasionally you had a crisis where you wanted one man in control, and so they had a dictatorship, which was usually six months to kind of see off whatever enemy was at the gates, and then back to standard rule. The dictator Sulla had started to expand that in the early first century BCE. And what Caesar does is calls himself dictator. And in the end, this completely oxymoron. I mean, dictator forever sounds just a bit quaint to us. In Rome, the whole point of being a dictator was you are not forever. And he gets he gets murdered, assassinated, because people thought, or some people thought, he was aiming at kingship, one-man rule, that he was taking away liberty. And the paradox of that is, is that Brutus and Cassius, who I have to say were probably a pretty disreputable pair of coves who got a horribly good press from Shakespeare, which makes us think they were honourable Romans, they killed Caesar in the name of liberty, and succeeded, actually, in bringing about one-man rule. They thought what they were doing was stopping one-man rule, but actually the effect of killing Caesar, they had no forward plan, you know, like many assassins. You know, it's easy enough killing the guy. It's not so easy to know what you do next. And the very next year, actually, Brutus is putting his own head on the coin. So within months of Caesar dying, it is looking as if one-man rule... Is, is a done deal, actually. Even, you know, that seems to be accepted even by the people who were killing him in a blow against kingship. And what you get then with Caesar and then with Augustus, and it, in a way, it, it's part of the dilemma of being an emperor in Rome, is you have to play this double role. This is how I understand it. And there are echoes of this in contemporary politics, in contemporary democratic politics. If you're president of the United States, you have this dilemma too. On the one hand, you have to present yourself as superhuman in some way because you you are the one man who rules. So you have to be different from all other human beings to justify your power, but you haven't got kingship in order to do it. On the other hand, you still, because it's Rome, have to present yourself as human like everyone else. Yeah. It's almost impossible to square yeah. that circle. Yeah. Caesar couldn't do it. Augustus, yeah. in a way, could. But it, it is one of the odd things it, about the Roman emperor compared to some other kinds of dictatorial rule. The Roman emperor, at some level, still had to present himself as 
One of them. Yeah, one of the lads. I mean, when the when the lads are the upper crust row. Yeah. I mean, I don't mean, you know, I don't mean one of the lads in a more general sense. I mean, I, I, Augustus has it lucky in a way because after the assassination of Caesar and once Brutus and Cassius have been disposed of, there's 12, 13 years of civil war. And it's a peculiarly nasty civil war in which the people who think of themselves as heirs to Caesar actually fight it out amongst themselves once they've got rid of of the assassins. And he ends up as the last man standing once Antony and Cleopatra are defeated at the Battle of Actium. And although I think it's always a, a bit oversimplifying to say, you know, as is often said, the Roman world was just desperate for peace, <laughs> you know, because actually most of the Roman world was desperate to win, but it was possible for him to come in when the kind of slaughter on the streets of Rome had been terrible and to say, New Deal, guys. But you're right, he has to say a new deal, or the new deal he constructs is a very careful one. Now, how far this was part of a master plan, as later Romans thought, how far it was a series of improvisations that happened to work, we just don't know. But what he does is, is he tries to tread that tightrope between this is one man rule everybody, you know, I, I control things around here. And seeing that power and constructing and rhetoricising that power in terms of the old republic, so that the office holding of two consuls, number of praetors, etc., the old offices go on, the Senate still meets, senatorial privileges are enhanced, and you know everybody still wants to be consul. Now, it is often said, the kind of thing I was taught really about this was you know, really an answer to your question of how do you do this? You know, how can you be both president and one of the lads? The huge hypocrisy was at stake. You know, that what Augustus came along and he made himself one man ruler, but he sort of dressed this up with a pretense that democracy was continuing. And that, I think, is a dumb explanation of what's happening. You know, the Roman elite are not stupid. You know, they know that democracy in the terms that they had it before is not continuing. I think that Augustus's skill really goes back to the word rhetoricised that I used, is he manages to construct and couch and present one-man rule in traditional old-fashioned Roman terms. He manages to use the vocabulary and the assumptions about the democratic, and it's not very democratic, the sort of democratic constitution, to construct his own position as emperor. Now, he does a lot of other things too, which which underpin that position. I mean, crucially, he nationalises the army. Um, and you might, you could also see, you know, at the same time as this is a rule of you know, primus inter pares, a first among equals, it was also military dictatorship, because he controls force. But he uses the terms and the assumptions of the old system to build a new system with. And I think that is how he squares that circle. And he also captures that other dilemma of imperial rule in ancient Rome. He was the adopted son of Julius Caesar. So you have this weird hereditary, non-hereditary yeah. system. Yeah. It's sort of fascinating to read about 
unusual, but in a, in another way, it completely makes sense. The flaw of monarchy is biology. Yep. You are completely at the mercy of genetic inheritance. And that's yep. why monarchy is, on yep. the one hand, a very precarious business. The great advantage of monarchy is it's completely clear who comes next. Exactly. That's absolutely. And In Rome, you could adopt your successor. And so you were playing a double game, not your son, but pretending it was your son. And he's the first of that, but by no means the last. Yeah, it's seeing, it sees succession in familial terms, but using adoption as a way of actually breaking through those constraints. And I think it's the downside for the Romans. I mean, the downside for traditional monarchies is that you end up with someone completely hopeless on the throne, but you don't fight about it because that's the way it goes. In Rome, you have much wider choice amongst the penumbra of the imperial family and elite. But the consequence of there being no system is that you're fighting about it the whole time. And much of the debates and discussion in the Roman court that we see clearest in the sort of Robert Graves, Julio Claudian, I Claudius period, much of the suspicion and the rivalries and the gossip about death and who you know, who really caused the death of young Marcellus. Much of that actually goes back to a problem about how do we know who's going to come next? Now, it's interesting in the case of Augustus because he and Livia, Brian Blessed and Sean Phillips, as I will forever see them, right? He and Livia both had children before they married each other, but they had no living children together. So in a sense, Whatever Augustus's plans had been about how succession was going to be orchestrated, he had no son with Livia in that first imperial family. And so he adopts a variety and eventually he adopts Livia's son from her first marriage, Tiberius, and he ends up being the last man standing and everybody from Suetonius onwards has said, so Livia poisoned the others. And that may or may not be true, but it's picking up on that sense of, so why didn't it work out with X or Y? And it goes on. Adoption is the commonest way in Rome that you succeed. The first biological son to succeed his biological father on the throne is Titus succeeding Vespasian in 81. So that's more than 100 years after the system is established. And in the, the second century, it becomes in a way a bit fetishised um, that the, the whole point of succession is to use the mechanism of adoption to provide the most suitable person on the throne. It doesn't look like that under Augustus. It looks as if he's, he's using adoption as a way of marking out who's going to be the heir. Um, you can find bits of rather po-faced Roman rhetoric from the second century, which says this is, this is precisely how it should be, right? Because adoption gives you the best person, and that's where Gibbon comes in, in a way, saying, ha-ha, you know, best time to be alive, ha-ha. The only other system I know of, I'm sure there are others, that does it this way is in Japanese business. So one of the reasons that some of the longest-lasting companies in the world are Japanese, is their family businesses. But we all know family businesses don't last because within three generations, it's passed to a son, almost always a son, who's been educated in a privileged way and has no head for business. Yes. 
in Japan, the family adopts the managing director yeah. as a son. Yeah. And that yeah. way you keep it yeah. in the family, but obviously it's not at the mercy of biology. I don't know how common it is now. It apparently used to be quite common. But part of the reason it works is that there has already been a test in the sense that the person has risen to the position of managing director so you know that they can do the job. That's not the case here. So it's not as if what you've had is a kind of trial run to see who would be a good emperor. It's still at the mercy of arbitrary, whimsical it, preference. It is, but one has to remember that these people are not being adopted as infants. And our image of adoption... Sure. And obviously in Japan, they're being adopted at age 30, 40. Yes. Yeah. Um, our image of adoption tends to, to see it as, as infant adoption. And Rome had always used a system of young male, you know, we're talking late teens, early 20s, sometimes older, adoption in order to secure property, for example, in the family, in inverted commas. I mean, R Rome has it has a problem, you know, that you know half the children die before they're 10 and they probably die worse if they're at the top under <laughs> the top of Roman society and you know, a prey to Roman doctors than you know if they're a peasant so there's a very strong chance that any Roman family is not going to have a a male heir surviving to adulthood and adoption has always been the way of filling that in it hasn't been the way of providing a baby for those who don't have one as always with this system there are double standards and there are hypocrisies and i was very struck reading your book that nonetheless when you want to attack an emperor you say they're the result of adultery they're bastards you bring biology back in yeah. particularly female biology yes in order to undermine, even though the system has been set up to emancipate rule from biology. Yes. That's classic Roman double standards. It right? is absolutely classic. And it's, you know, and it brings in the Roman and modern, you know, blame the woman kind of argument, which goes down very well amongst ancient as well as modern readers. And the extreme version would be, actually, she had sex with a slave, and that's where this person came from, yeah. even though everyone's also meant to think it's not a biological inheritance. And the Emperor Commodus at the end of the second century is a great example of that, because he is the biological son of Marcus Aurelius, the um, philosopher emperor, as he is rather generously known. The self-help guru. The self-help guru, uh, best-selling, still best-selling self-help guru, we have to say. And the wife of, of Marcus Aurelius, Faustina, is one of those women who get that treatment. You know, what's your wife doing? You know, whose children are you having through her? And there was always the story that she was terribly keen on gladiators and that Marcus, the apparent children of Marcus were actually the children of Fastina's gladiator lovers. That was never more edgily expressed than in relation to her son Commodus, who succeeded supposedly Marcus Aurelius' son Commodus, because he actually was dead keen on performing as a gladiator. Um, you know, ha-ha, said the Roman uh, observers. You know, he takes after his real dad, doesn't he? I want to go back to Augustus. So it is true that I think most contemporary business leaders will talk about reading Marcus Aurelius. It's a fashionable thing to say. But there's one exception to this, which is Mark Zuckerberg. And I've always been fascinated by this. So Mark Zuckerberg is a super fan of Augustus. So Mark Zuckerberg called his one of his children August after Augustus. Mark Zuckerberg went on holiday to Rome so he could show his new wife 
where Augustus did his stuff. His new wife said there were three people on our honeymoon, me, him, and the emperor, Augustus. <laughs> I wish Diana had said that. <laughs> exactly. It's a different kind of three people. And Mark Zuckerberg is quoted as having said, the thing about Augustus was he had to do some pretty nasty things, but the result was 200 years of peace. That is the Mark Zuckerberg sort of mm. potted version of this. Yeah. And he genuinely seems to have taken some of this on board. It also, I think, explains something I've always been puzzled by with Mark Zuckerberg, which is he has terrible hair. You know, he has that weird haircut. Yes. And it was only when I was looking at the pictures in your book that I suddenly realised, <laughs> of course, that's what he's doing. He thinks it's a Roman haircut. So what the hell right. is going on there? No. Mark Zuckerberg, that potted version of history, which is to build an empire on this scale, a global empire mm -hmm. like Facebook, yeah. Meta, in the end, it'll be 200 years of peace, but you have to do some nasty stuff yeah. along the way, have to cut some yeah. corners along the yeah. way. Yeah. So that version, the peace that came, the imperial peace, as you say, it's not much of a piece for a start. <laughs> let's, un let's unpick yeah. the Mark Zuckerberg version of well, history. You, you've got to remember that Mark Zuckerberg's sister is a, a very good classicist. He's written, uh, did a PhD in classics. So I expect Mark Zuckerberg has had, had a bit of help okay. at home. And it's not stupid, you know, and I'd much rather people got really interested in Augustus than in Marcus Aurelius, because it's actually a much more interesting problem. And I've not read Zuckerberg on this, but your account is a rather gentle account of how you might see Augustus moving from civil war to a reign of peace and establishing it for 200 odd years. The truth is, and it's only a little to the side of that, but it's, I think, significantly different, that this period of civil war after the death of Caesar, it was awful. It was civil war of a brutality that... Roman writers spent pages and pages talking about horrible deaths, brothers killing brother, et cetera, et cetera. And Augustus, or Octavian, as he then was known, was absolutely central in it. And there were plenty of stories told about him as you know, a pretty brutish centre of the violence that was going on. He would tear out a man's eyes with his bare hands. Now, you know, we don't have to believe this, but that's the image that Augustus has. So it's not kind of you've got to do a few nasty things. You know, you, he was a serious brute. What is truly amazing about him, and I think no one's ever explained quite how he did it, is that he manages, you know, as other terrorist leaders have managed to do, he turns himself from appalling thug into father of his country sort of overnight. And he marks that by a new name. So he gives up the name Octavian or Octavius and he calls himself Augustus. Now, we take the name Augustus, you know, without batting an eyelid, really, because it's the name of the first proper Roman emperor. It's given us the name of the month of August, whatever. It was a completely made-up name, which... I think to Romans at the time would have sounded a bit North Korean. It means revered one. So he is inventing himself as a revered one. And it actually works. And it works for for all kinds of reasons. As, as I said, I think that the nationalisation of the army was quite important in this. That what gave 200 years of sort of peace, I mean, it's much like sort of democracy earlier on, sort of peace is that he brings all the army under central control. Before, Rome's armies had always been semi-private armies. 
not entirely private, but they'd always been loyal to their generals rather than to the state. Augustus says, these are state armies, or rather my armies. And he does that by fixing a fixed length of service and giving a pension. He brings over the forces of the empire. Now, it is hugely expensive to do that. And that's, I think, in a a way, a sign of Augustus seeing at some level that this was the absolute crucial thing. It's reckoned that it costs, what, half the annual income of the Roman Empire to do that, to pay the soldiers and to pay the pension fund. And we can see that it was squeezing the imperial coffers because what do authorities do when they can't pay the pension fund, right? They increase the pension age. And that is exactly what is happening by the end of the reign of Augustus. Uh, They've increased the pension age to save money. But that is what is the fundamental organ of peace. And it is successful in the sense that there's only two periods between then and the 230s when armies fight it out for who is going to control Rome or be emperor. There's the period, the year after the, the forced suicide of Nero, and 193 after the, the assassination of Commodus, when you have rival armies and rival generals fighting it out. But given what the history of the late Republic had been, uh, and then the civil war was after the death of Caesar with, you know, anybody who could pay for an army themselves being in a position to fight it out for power in the state. That was a brilliant move. And Augustus knew about that because he'd hired a private army. So he knew from first principles, you know, that he, how dangerous it was and how useful it was to someone who wanted to take the state over. So the Zuckerberg analogy doesn't really work in the sense that I don't think the Facebook piece is going to be built that way. As you were talking, I found myself thinking, does he think that when he changed the name from Facebook to Meta, he went from a somewhat arbitrary given name, I mean, when they called it Facebook, they didn't know what they were building, to a name that means the idea that overarches all the other ideas? I mean, there's a kind of vanity to that. Um, But people often try and characterise the power of these unbelievably powerful tech titans. Yeah. I've seen them described as pharaohs. It's sort of pharaonic. Yes, I don't know yeah. if it really is. I'm not actually sure what that means. It's unfair on the pharaohs, I think. I think so. But it, so one of the ways in which it seems to me it does have a Roman imperial quality to it is they are extraordinarily powerful in the way that these companies have been set up at the very top within their own courts. You know, every description I've read of the world around Musk or Zuckerberg, it's a fawning world. It's a world where their whims are arbitrarily sort of roll out across this sort of empire. But at the same time, they're pretty clueless about what's going on at the edges because it's so vast, you know, two, three billion people. And actually, their vanity, which tells them they've created an information empire where they're at the centre of it, but they're not. So much of it depends on deputies and people that they don't know, that they have no control of. That feels to me a bit Roman imperial. It is. And it's very Roman imperial because there are different constraints, but they come down to much the same thing. You know, at the centre of the Roman Empire is this guy, and always a man, who, in some senses, but it's only in inverted commas, rules the world. He can't communicate quickly with anybody on the margins. I mean, we have 
series of letters, for example, between the Emperor Trajan and the governor of Bithynia, Pliny, when Pliny is writing back, because in a sense there's a performative version of being a provincial governor, which is that you defer to the view of the emperor. But he's sending a letter, which is going to take two and a half months or three to get there, and it's going to take two and a half months to three to get back, by which time presumably Pliny has had to decide what to do himself. You know, One of the famous letters is when he writes saying there's this kind of rather unpleasant new religion and... They're terribly kind of disruptive and they're called Christians. What should I do about them? Well, presumably by the time the letter gets back from Trajan saying, you know, just cool it, you know, probably won't last. He's presumably made his mind up. So you have that illusion of control. You know, it's what some historians call an emperor, empire of correspondence. They're all, everybody is writing in and writing back. But in a sense, they're covering their butts. You know, I did write to the emperor about this. You know, And it can't possibly direct what happens on the ground. And that's for if you're thinking about the margins of your company, right? You know, If you're thinking about what's going on in court, then I imagine it is pretty much like Musk or Zuckerberg, or I think some British prime ministers may be, or American presidents, that everything that comes to you is filtered, and you don't know what's getting filtered out. And you are the beneficiary of compliments, of flattery, of whatever, but you're the only person in the world, and you know this to be the case, that can never believe anything that anybody says to you. So you are both the leader of this empire, but you're the person who is least informed and is most taken for a ride because everybody says what they think you want to hear. And that, I would imagine, is the case for some of these CEOs. I mean, presumably, very occasionally, you get a right-hand man who'll say, no, Mark, don't do it. But I suspect rather rarely. That has always struck me as one of the distinctive features of arbitrary rule and one of the things that's easiest to get wrong, which is that we think of the power as arbitrary going out. That is, it follows the whims of the ruler and the ruler can decide this or decide that. But it's arbitrary coming in, in a way that in democracies, it isn't necessarily arbitrary because there are these systems designed to filter information so the important stuff reaches the top. And I think the double illusion of the Zuckerbergs of this world, in Rome, it took too long for the information to get there. Now it's too quick, right? It's arbitrary partly because instantaneous information yeah. is also random. Yeah. Yeah. So there's no, there's no filtering system. No. No. But... I think the thing that's often hardest to reconstruct when you're trying to think what it would be like to be inside the head of someone ruling over this vast empire is that you're doing it on a basis of almost complete ignorance. ignorance. That's yes. the crucial thing. Yeah. And we've yes. been misled or deceived yes. by 20th century images of yes. totalitarianism mm. and a sort yeah. of big brother thing. That is, if not what never happens, it is the exception. The rule is the really powerful single-person ruler is ruling in the dark. Yeah. And the question is whether they realise that. You get the feeling that some of them do, and so, you know, this is just hunch, you think some of them do and some of them don't, because you're told a lot, but you've got to realise you can't believe a word of it or that it's only a very partial account. And then you're dependent, if you're in Rome, on who takes the letter that tells somebody what to do anyway. And how do you know it's really saying 
what you actually want. Well, you can perhaps sign it off. But I mean, I, I suppose I came to the feeling that you know, it's no desire to spend my life feeling sorry for Roman emperors. It's not kind of, it's not a good look, is it? But I thought, you know, there's this ordinary guy there and he's frail with all the faults. He might have been the best of a, the candidates, sort of, for the job. But he's an ordinary guy and he has to believe in him. He's got to believe he's the ruler of the Roman world in some ways. That's sort of what the propaganda is for. I mean, we think of all the statues that are put up around the world and as convincing people like us that X is on the throne. It's also convincing X that he is king, or not king, but but leader. So you've got to kind of square that circle of seeing yourself as emperor, but then also... How do you ever find things out? And I think you might say, I think it'd be a rather generous view of him, that when Hadrian, who's the most travelled emperor of all, decides to go on huge journeys through almost every province of the Roman Empire, we don't know what's driving that. You know, with, he does a bit of tourism, you know, we, we simply don't know. But, you know, in a sense, he is actually seeing things firsthand, which many emperors didn't see. Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. Ready to get 30, 30, ready to get 30, ready to get 20, 20, 20, ready to get 20, 20, ready to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month. So give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with PlushCare. PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at PlushCare.com slash weight loss. That's PlushCare.com slash weight loss. PlushCare.com slash weight loss. The other way I think it's different from contemporary democracy. So some of what you've described is completely recognisable, including presidents and prime ministers, ordinary blokes, still almost always blokes, who have to persuade themselves that somehow there is a reason why they've been chosen for this superhuman power. I mean, their, their powers are mind-boggling and they vastly exceed the yeah. powers of Roman emperors because yeah. they yeah. can destroy the world, which yeah. Roman emperors couldn't. But in the Roman version, this rule was still personal, whereas in the modern yeah. democratic state yes. version, there is this vast impersonal bureaucratic machine that keeps chugging along as the people come and go. And one of the things I was really struck by reading your account of what it is to rule Rome as an emperor is it's ruled by correspondence, but it's personal requests. It's yeah. People writing to the emperor saying, I've got a personal mm -hmm. problem. Yes. I mean, I've got a problem yes. in my family, in my village, yeah. in my town, yes. in my... Yeah. And that is different. So there is a bureaucracy here, as you say, and being an emperor wasn't just sort of gladiators and swords. It was sitting at your desk and it was getting letters and answering letters. Yeah. But it's not it's not what we mean by bureaucratic in a modern sense, uh, I think. It's oh, too no, personal no, no, it's, no. and it's too arbitrary. Yeah. The emperor and, might say, I will deal with your problem or I won't, but it's your problem. There's not yeah, a system yeah. to manage and it. There is absolutely no system of 
what we would call a rational bureaucracy of appointments, of criteria for appointments, or criteria for how you get to see some people's letters and not others. I mean, there is a one of the kind of branding points of the Roman emperor is that he was accessible to everybody. He was like a kind of constituency MP, yeah. uh, but for the whole empire. Right? Now, that is written into all kinds of anecdotage. You know, Hadrian is out in the countryside and a woman says, excuse me, Emperor, I've got a problem. And he says, I'm terribly sorry, I haven't got time to deal with it. She says, killer point, if you haven't got time for me, you've not got time to be Emperor. Right? And it's a story told not only about Hadrian, but about earlier Greek kings. So you, know, you, you have to be accessible. And we have plenty of evidence for that accessibility because people put their problems to the emperor. The emperor, if the emperor gives a, an answer which suits them, you know, they'll go back to their hometown and have it all inscribed on stone, ready for us to read 2,000 years later. You know, we probably don't see the cases where the emperor's answer wasn't so much what the requester had wanted. But nevertheless, we get a lot of this. We also know that this cannot possibly have worked like that for everybody. There's, there's 50 million people in the Roman Empire and you sort of sense there is a parade of accessibility here. And often, if they give you enough information to dig down into, how did, how did Joe Bloggs here get the emperor to listen to his case, you find that there's a chain of mediation into the palace hierarchy. There's a, a wonderful complaint that the people of a small village in modern Bulgaria put um, to an emperor in the third century. And they go on at enormous length about you know, how the Roman soldiers have been trashing their village and they've just got to go because you know, these thugs, these squaddies are coming in you know, every weekend. It's bloody awful, right? Please stop them. At the bottom, they say, the person who's putting the case says, I am putting this on behalf of my village and I am currently serving in the Praetorian Guard at Rome. And you suspect that there is that illusion of total accessibility with kind of key examples about which a lot of fuss was made, but that many of them, it was a question of, you know, do you know somebody? You know someone who can get my case put to the emperor. And that must have been how it was like, though at the same time, absolutely living under the umbrella of anybody can bring their problems to me. And of course, I don't want to suggest that modern politics doesn't have an awful lot of that in it too. So access to these leading politicians, to presidents and prime ministers is very arbitrary and it often depends on remarkably narrow yes. personal yes. connections. Yes. I think it is possible to argue that the American presidency has more of that imperial Roman feel to it than, say, a British prime minister, partly because it used to be the case, less so now the security state has more or less put an end to this, but that the president was meant to be accessible. The White House was meant to be open. Yeah. People were meant to be able to kind of walk yeah. through the yes. White House. And that was part of yeah. the rhetoric of yeah. the American Republic, but it's the yes. imperial yeah. version of it. And American presidents do also, you know, when they come into Washington, D.C., they clear out... You know, the, the people at the top of the ostensible civil service, they bring their own people in. And the presidency has more of that 
personal authority. And it's now become a bit of a cliche that America is Rome. So America was founded as a version of the Roman Republic. But now when people say that, they don't mean it's the Republic. They mean it's the empire. It's decadent. And it's got this rule at the top, which is both hyper-personal, but also increasingly decadent and inefficient. And then Trump probably is meant to exemplify this. When you hear people say America is Rome, what does it do to you? Does it annoy you or do you do you get it? I just wish they'd be a bit more sophisticated about what being Rome meant, right? Because I think that's often paraded, really, with the capital and the mole and the idea of Roman imperial, not necessarily one-man rule kind of grandeur, but the grandeur of the Roman Empire is seen as a a convenient analogue with bits of good republicanism thrown in to make it okay. We're thinking about us as with the tribunes of the people and all the rest. You know, I think that it's always misleading when someone says, oh, that's just like Rome. I mean, we've been doing it. Um, We've been trying to kind of... Yeah, and and they mainly mean by that also it's doomed. I mean, that's the other subtext. If America is Rome, this empire, this vast global empire is now tottering. What we all know is that Rome declines. And so there's always a kind of sense of edge and gloom and just you wait comes into it. Hubris, decadence, yes, all of it. that's right. And, you know, and, and for us, we look at 19th century governors of parts of the British Empire all dressed up in their Roman costume dotted around the Foreign Office and we kind of think this is slightly silly, right? You know, and we think it's not all that far from a toga party. And, of course, FDR famously celebrated one of his birthdays with a toga party in order to say, you're calling me a Caesar? Well... I can play the part as well as anybody. So there's always ambivalence here when you say something's Rome. It's it's never said quite straight and it it's never entirely positive. Although often it gives you this kind of sense of a framework within which to understand how power works. And I think that's in some ways for me that's what's what's important about the political side of Rome. Is it gives you it gives you that framework and it gives you gives you some extremely sophisticated contemporary observers of Roman power who actually do expose some of the things that we perhaps find more difficult to expose ourselves. And to go back to something that we talked about at the beginning, a feature of contemporary democracy that I've been struck by is, like you say, FDR says, you're going to treat me like a Caesar, I can do it. But even that word Caesar People always say it's the same word that gives you Tsar and Kaiser. So it means it's the origins of those are the modern emperors, the Kaiser, the Tsar, they are ruling empires. But Caesarism in my world, in political science, means something different. So Max Weber said the Caesarist politicians were Gladstone and Lloyd George. Because what he means by Caesarism is that other version, the one that's harking back, which is someone acquiring extraordinary personal individual yeah. power yes. off the back of a popular system, yeah. using yeah. a system of democratic yes. rule yes. to centralise power around yes. their personalities, yes. yeah. their individual personalities. And that absolutely, that kind of Caesarism, so we don't have Kaisers and Tsars as such anymore, but that kind of Caesarism yeah. is still completely Which, central to yeah. our politics, yeah. I think. Which is what I think Ferdy Mount was saying in his latest, you know, Big Caesars and Little Caesars. He was, that's the image of Caesarism that he was he was plugging, I think. So one last thing, which is about how this story ends. 
So it ends with that weird religion, Christianity, <laughs> suddenly coming from the margins to the centre. And one of the things that happens when that happens is, as you say, it inverts what is a basic tenet of the Roman view of the world, which is that the weak are weak and the strong are strong. And now suddenly the meek will inherit the earth. And that is a deeply un-Roman yes. idea. Yes. Right? I mean, that's, that's the antithesis yes. of the Roman view. Yes. The, the meek are, are <laughs> fodder for the yes. Colosseum. They are not going to inherit the earth. But because the meek are going to inherit the earth, you get another version of that dilemma we started with, the Caesar dilemma, which is, so if you're going to rule a Christian system, you both have to be different from everyone else because you're the ruler, but you also have to be meek, right? Or you have to be able to show that you recognize the Christian virtues of humility. And as I understand it, one of the ironies of what happens to the Roman imperial system is Roman emperors in the Christian world become more removed, more remote in a yeah. way, at the same time as this is meant to yeah. be inverting the idea that these men are are separate and godlike because they are no longer yeah. gods. No, exactly. But somehow the Christian version of this, of that dilemma, how, how are you both removed from everyone else but also humble like everyone else, creates this bigger gap now. Yeah. And yeah. again, you can see yeah. it in contemporary politics, yeah. the humility of the elected politician who is also completely removed from the people. Yeah, absolutely. And I think people are often puzzled because if Christianity was that complete subversion of everything that you took for granted about how the world worked, and it was in a way, and heaven knows how it, you know, how that happened, then you sort of expect that emperors will fall with that version of how the world works. But in fact, through a set, no doubt, of improvisations, but also clevernesses and the power of bishops and whatever, you find that the Roman Empire is probably more propped up by Christianity than it ever was by the traditional Roman pagan religion or at least as much so. And the blurring of the figure of God, of Jesus and the Roman emperor, who starts to look increasingly, as you say, increasingly holy, absolutely reasserts Roman power. It does not challenge it. The other thing I suppose everyone knows about Roman emperors is that they die and become God. <laughs> I think I am becoming a God is, is among the famous last words, yes. questions in pub quizzes. And you know, yes. that's a Roman emperor. <laughs> but it's also absurd, right? There's a recognition that it's farcical. There's something right. you think no one's going to fall for that. These people, so for a start, they come and go too quickly. Maybe Augustus could get away with it. But successively, the idea that these people yeah. are gods is ridiculous. Once you get the Christian version, the ultimate version in Christ himself of someone or something that is yeah. both quintessentially human and quintessentially yeah. divine. It's no longer ridiculous no, in a way. No, it's all stitched up perfectly. Yeah, so mm -hmm. it's almost like the, yeah. the deification of the emperor, emperor. Yes. was so hypocritical in a way yeah. that it couldn't quite no. grip. No. But the world that we've been living in for not quite 2,000 years, but not far off, which is the Christian version of that, we deify... Mm our leaders in a way that sometimes... And we see how people do worship uh, political yeah, leaders yeah. now. And bizarrely, of course, the fact that we do think that Roman emperors becoming gods is so silly 
um, is, is, is because the Christians told it. I mean, it was absolutely fantastic PR opportunity of the Christians. You know, can you possibly believe this rubbish, everybody? And in fact, they do it better. And I think in some ways what saves the deification of Roman emperors from mere silliness is not just that in some level it makes sense in paganism, that we are so used to religions, world religions, in which the one boundary you can't cross is the boundary between gods and men. Well, in much of, of ancient quotes, paganism, that boundary was not regularly crossable, but it was crossable. You know, Hercules, bona fide god, but he started life as a mortal. And so ways of expressing power can use that boundary, can straddle that boundary. But it's also the case that the Romans themselves could see the stupid side of it. And so when Vespasian says, or is reputed to have said in his deathbed, I think I'm becoming a god, that was not because he was feeling that deification. It was, he was an old joker to the last. Exactly. It shows quite some presence of mind to be able to crack that joke. Yes, I don't. Right at I, the end. I think we, you know, I think it's, um, you <laughs> know. have it cracked about, on your behalf. Yes, I think have it cracked on your behalf. But, you know, one of the funniest works of Latin literature, I mean, I almost go so far as to say the only work of Latin literature that's ever made me actually laugh out loud is the pumpkinification of the Emperor Claudius, the Apocolicintosis, written by Nero's tutor, Seneca. And it is a satire, a skit, on the sheer silliness of the deification of the emperor, that Claudius has been made a god by the Senate because it's the Senate that does it. And he's going up to Olympus. He's pretty slow because he's a bit old and dodgery. And when he gets there, the gods have a bit of a discussion and they say, no, thank you. You know, we're not having him in our number. Send him back down to Hades, everybody. And there are quite a lot of funny encounters that Claudius has on the way before being shoved out of heaven. But that is impossible to imagine in a Christian empire. That's it. And I hesitate to bring Nietzsche in right at the end oh, here. Oh, gosh. But it is the case that when you, when you see this story laid out, this sweeping story about forms of power and personal rule where we can see foreshadowings of our world in it. But in the Roman version, you can also see through it in lots of ways. And one of the things about Christianity, and this was one of Nietzsche's point, is that it overlays it in a way which makes it harder to see through it. And in our world, including, Nietzsche would say, democracy is an outcrop of Christianity, in our democratic world, we actually find it harder to see through the hypocrisies of imperial power. But we still have them. I think that's right. And I think that, you know, one of the reasons for studying the ancient world is that you can see through it. It's there for you to see through. Mary Beard's new book is called Emperor of Rome, and you can get it wherever you buy your books. We do always try and encourage listeners to this podcast to get their books from independent booksellers and not from one of the imperial bookselling hyperpowers, naming no names. Do please follow us on Twitter at PPF Ideas, where we will post links to this and future episodes. Next week, on Past, Present, Future, I am going to be resuming the conversation I had a few weeks ago with Leah Ippi. We both felt at the end of that conversation that there was a lot still to be said about democracy. And so next week, we're going to be talking about that, what democracy is, where it comes from, what it means, how it could be done better. 
Do please join us then. This has been Past, Present, Future, brought to you in partnership with the London Review of Books.